This episode is brought to you in partnership with Wacom. Across the globe, learning is still handwriting-centric, especially in mathematics and science. This can make the shift to digital tasks challenging. Many schools are seeking effective apps and hardware to ensure a smoother transition for digital learning, especially for STEM lessons. Expanding digital pen and ink technology from teachers to students opens up new possibilities for communication and collaboration in and out of the classroom. Using pen-enabled devices, teachers and students can explain complex concepts, take notes, provide feedback, and show their work quickly and easily. Wacom pen displays and tablets easily plug in to the existing IT equipment in the classroom, enabling members of the class to interact with the digital content being shared. The teacher never even needs to turn their back on the class. Collaboration is simple when working on shared documents and apps with the digital pen. There's no new software to learn. You just work with the pen on the screen or tablet instead of the mouse and keyboard on your computer. As educators, myself, Steve and Ben have all integrated the use of Wacom technology into where we've worked in education, into colleges and schools, and we have seen the benefits for ourselves. So go check it out for yourself. Uh, The link is in the show notes for this episode. Good evening and welcome to another episode of the Edge Future podcast. Easy for me to say. We're on episode 197 today. Uh, there's just the two of us, um, plus a guest who's we're going to bring in in a moment. Dan is at some glitzy glamour ball somewhere trying to, I don't know, I don't know if I should probably say this, but he's, he's sat there in an in award ceremony and probably in a nice tuxedo, having a nice bit of food and leaving us to do the podcast. Hope you, hope you win, Dan. By the time this goes out, we'll know anyway. So, good luck. <laughs> yeah, fingers crossed. Fingers crossed. Uh, well deserved. Dan's yeah, doing uh, some great work in the in the northeast. But uh, but yeah, how's uh, how's everything going, Ben? How's how's the week been? It's been it's been a good week. Um, doing some work on an online academy work. So actually, I think I'll tie in with our guest for this evening. But yeah, I'm doing some work with a client to support them on their development of. Online Academy around digital marketing. Uh, so yeah, I've been working with some clients on that and some um, some potential colleges that are going to be working with that. I've been behind the camera again today. This oh no, in front of a camera, not not behind a camera, in front of a camera um, as the star of the show. Apparently, that's what they call me. Um, I'm not sure if that's a that's an actual title. I don't know if I can put that on my LinkedIn uh, star of the show. But yeah, so that I've been doing that a little bit this week, and then uh, been doing a little bit more work around some of the voluntary work that I do. Um, around that trustees work and I've been literally working right at the bottom at the beginning of the educational spectrum in the preschool that I do some support with uh, as well so yes it's been good it's been um, it's been a rewarding week this week so I'm very very uh, grateful to have variety in what I do Um, and Steve you were just saying just before you came on that uh, it's been a it's been a a, a busy week for you as well but you had an interesting uh, interesting uh, event that you went to as well didn't you? Yeah, so it's a, yeah, it's a, it's been a good week, uh, heavy in planning and for our uh, for the work I do, and we've got a further education um, event uh, down at Google offices uh, in a couple of weeks. Uh, I am the chair of the advisory group and and, and opening the event next week uh, for the EdTech Summit. So I've been planning on that, doing some fireside stuff, some loads of different stuff, kind of doing this, but just face to face. So yeah, looking forward to that. And yeah, I attended an event. A fireside chat last night. Um, the first talk was a gent who leads a, a really successful law firm uh, through uh, the SME Leeds Business Forum through Leeds University, uh, talking about all the different pitfalls of starting a business and loads of different stuff. So that was really interesting, talking about contractual stuff and some boring stuff, but making it fun. But then the, the bit that I absolutely loved, uh, it was in conversation with the COO um, of uh, Parkrun, so talking about in its roots, what how it's developed, what he started his career as a lecturer in sports science, and and how it's evolved uh, as a park run, and and now across all of the different countries and all of the different stuff, and throwing some really mega stats in in regards to its impact it's had on, and they now have they, they we talk about efficiency, don't we, and how technology can improve things, but yeah. they made a conscious effort to to really shift their focus uh, to not reduce human volunteers 
and just scan if you've ever been to a park run, just scan the, the barcode at the end and do that through technology. And what they've done is they've increased social inclusion and the community feel and everything else that comes with it by increasing their volunteers from 10 to 20 that have to take part and all of that different Good. effect it has on people's mental health and and coming together. Yeah, it was really, really fascinating. I loved it. Um, yeah, yeah so it sounds good. Almost as excited as I am for this one, to be fair. Yes. So, uh, so, uh, so, yes, it's uh, two good conversations in a in a week is always a positive thing. Absolutely, absolutely. And uh, we've, uh, we're delighted today to be joined um, as a guest all the way from Barcelona, uh, coming in, uh, not from the new camp. It's not Lionel Messi. Oh, no, he's not at the new camp anymore, is he? I was going to say Gerald Piquet before he's just uh, obviously just retired, but... Um, we have got a guest coming all the way from Spain, so we're very, very grateful. But before I bring him in, also a uh, massive congratulations. I know that his wife is due to give birth imminently, so thanks for thanks for slotting us in um, at a at a very, very pivotal time. So um, the CEO and founder of Microverse, we've got um, Ariel Camus, uh, and he's going to uh, ex- he's going to talk to us a little bit about uh, what what he does and the work they do. So thank you, thanks for joining us, Ariel. Thank you for for inviting me. It's a pleasure. So, um, yeah, you're over in Barcelona. Um, have you been there? Is that is that where you live? Is that where you're from? Or, or have you have you moved there for work or for other reasons? Or so I'm originally from Argentina, and my family and I we emigrated to Spain when I was 12 years old. We first moved to the Canary Islands. That's a whole different story. I went to college uh, in Madrid. And I started my first company there. I knew it was really limited by the possibilities of raising venture capital in Spain. So I moved to San Francisco, California. Uh, I lived in San Francisco for around seven years with a year in Boston in between. And then with my now wife, we left San Francisco to Asia. We lived there for a year. Uh, that's where I started the current company. I used that place because it's a beautiful you know, place. It was very inspiring, but also my runway was also infinite there so that I could truly make sure the current companies, you know, what I see myself building for the rest of my life. And then we moved back to San Francisco, uh, but we had to do the onboarding of a team member in Barcelona. So we came to Barcelona beginning of 2020 and the lockdown caught us here. And we had a sense that that's where we wanted to end up someday. And we decided that that was a sign from life that we had to stay. And here we are about to have a daughter we had to like you know furnish a house, buy all the stuff for the baby. So now we're gonna stay here for a while, probably. Yeah, that's, that's cool. That's a that's a cool story. Um, Argentina to the uh, Canary Islands to San Francisco to Boston to Asia, back to San Francisco into Barcelona and then stayed. Um, it is interesting how things sometimes conspire to keep us where they need we need to be. And uh, yeah, so it, it, we're we're really excited to come have you come on the podcast today and obviously we want to talk to you about the business you set up but in this in this guise of what you're trying to do is a is a different way of doing education but a specific type of education so I wonder if you could maybe start there and then we'll get into the conversation around like the philosophy behind it as well but talk to us about the company that you did set up at Microverse and and what that what that um, is, is designed to do. Absolutely. So I think it wouldn't be a surprise if I tell you after all this traveling and I add that I also spent some time teaching in Burundi uh, in the East of Africa in a very small town that I've gotten to see all sides of the spectrum when it comes to access to opportunities in life. And in fact, my own journey with my family as immigrants uh, showed me the price of immigration. And it's something that I'll be forever grateful uh, for to my parents uh, for all the sacrifices they made. And that's the reason I am here talking to you is because of those sacrifices, right? But uh, my vision for the world is one where like the place where people are born shouldn't determine their opportunities in life. Uh, of course, I believe that as, a, you know, as an individual because of my own values. But when I look also at the economy and society and the future, I see that that's a need. It's inevitable that we need to make that happen. Why? Because... In right now, we have a massive gap of talent for a new set of challenges. And we are realizing that the local market, markets are not enough. Many companies are starting to like buy force or as a need for more talent, going to more you know, outside of their countries to look for that talent. But when I think about the challenges that we are starting to experience, like climate change or a pandemic, or I always laugh or joke about it, like, you know, something like a, like an alien invasion, right? Uh, these are challenges that 
are so massive. And the more we evolve as humanity, the more complex they become and the more global that they become. So we are going to be by force uh, needed to come together as one in order to overcome those challenges. And if something we have learned from this pandemic, from climate change, is that we're actually really bad at just joining efforts as one species. We're still fighting each other in so many ridiculous ways, and we have so many of these challenges. So it's time to learn as a species what it takes to, to make this happen. So what we do is we train people. We are a school. We train people worldwide so that they can join the global economy through remote work. We train people uh, as of today in software engineering, although we have plans next year to launch new programs. But we do it with this unique angle where we train people specifically in multicultural skills, uh, best practices of the future of work, remote work, so they can join these global companies and they can access opportunities that they couldn't find uh, locally. So many fascinating points, to be honest, um, and so many bits. I'm sure we'll dive into some rabbit holes uh, throughout the conversation. But just on that last point, um, the, the, the obviously it's an online, it, well, not obviously, but it's an online school. Uh, and and look at it on the face of it, um, and you think right, but teachers coding and and developing and those kind of skills, and it's fine. But I want to hang a little bit of time on that last statement around the multicultural element of it and the future of work and those kind of applicable skills that maybe some of the schools um, also yeah, generally standard school education misses, but also some of the developing stuff. It focused on a particular niche, like just developing software and saying, well, that's what we need, but it misses the trick of application of, to context and being able to, even if you're living in Africa, and I've, I've, I've read the website, it's absolutely wonderful, and Kevin, I think it is, the the, the, the guy who's now working at Microsoft. How How is it that you've been able to develop Kevin to be to have the skills to be able to do that particular job, but also apply that to a global economy, like you've said, in a global organization, rather than just his mindset of I could be a coder and I'm going to work in Africa. How do you do that? What does that look like? So we have students in 140 countries and it's full time students, Monday through Friday, eight hours a day for a year, more or less. And this happened as a consequence of having a very clear set of challenges that we wanted to solve. On one hand, I, I was obsessed with you know, Bloom's Two Sigma problem and how do we make great education scalable? And there was a lot of great research on the potential of collaborative mm -hmm. learning, comparative learning, peer-to-peer learning, but a lot of challenges on how to make it scale. And on the other hand, I... Uh, was lucky enough that back in 2013, I met the founder and CEO of one of the largest uh, all remote companies today, GitLab, who taught me what it takes to run a fully remote organization. And I realized that remote work had the potential to become the bridge between the talents and the opportunities in the world, but that it required new skills. You're working across time zones, much more asynchronously, you're working multiculturally, written communication becomes as much more important. You need to manage your own time well. And I, I started thinking, how do we solve both problems at the same time? And I realized that this concept of collaborative learning, peer-to-peer learning, has the potential to one, be much more scalable because the more students you have, the better the experience gets. And on the other hand, a learning environment where students are learning from and with each other, and you have tons of diversity in that environment. It's also the perfect environment to not just teach how to code, but to teach these skills for a future that is much more globalized and multicultural than what we're all used to in our current jobs. So the why comes from, or the how comes from this absolute belief in the future of work, uh, globalization, multicultural like you know, cooperation, but most importantly, trying to find a scalable approach so that we can truly bring this to every corner of the planet. So I really like this, and I like this idea. There's a few things that you've just um, that you've just jumped into there that um, I'm writing down as fast as I can go. I think, um, and I think the first the first question really to go to is you mentioned the kind of the structure of your. Um, school or your learning platform is synchronous full-time 
Uh, and uh, before we went on there, you talked about how attendance tracking is really, really important. Um, progress and achievement is a, a precursor to uh, continuation on the course. Um, but you made a deliberate decision to go synchronous and uh, and uh, rather than self-paced and full-time. So has that... What was that? What was the rationale behind that decision? There is an important little detail that I didn't mention yet. We don't charge students up front. We only charge them once they get a high-paying job based on a percentage of their salary. Uh, this has been, I think, around for a while, this idea of the income share agreements. We are the only school, university, institution, bootcamp, you name it, in the world that is offering an income share agreement worldwide. Why? Because otherwise, how can we get to the people that we truly believe have the talents but not the opportunity? Right? And of course, there's much more to just tuition. You also have to pay for food, you have to pay for accommodation, internet connection, power supply. So many things, by the way, that as a very privileged person, I give for granted so often. And in this journey for the last four years, I learned that it's not the reality for most people, definitely not for our students. We have students who have to walk two, three miles per day to bring gallons, like buckets of, of gas to keep their electricity generators running. We have students that have died of malaria while going from the perm. We have seen everything. We have had students from Ukraine have like, you know, leave the country. Students in Afghanistan recently like suffering a lot after the, you know, the uh, departure of, you know, the American army there. Uh, We've seen it all. And it, 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 it's just like a very humbling experience. Yeah, I can, I can, I can imagine. I can imagine it's super humbling. And I think that, that tied into that, um, it feels like the mantra and the philosophy that sits behind this from, from what you've said and, and what we've read is that um, is that phrase you used earlier, which is that talent's everywhere, but opportunity isn't. Um, and uh, I really like that. Um, my background is, is a philosophy and religious studies teacher. So we often talk about ethics and rightness and wrongness and the equity of opportunity is... Um, is is heavily focused. I, th I don't think we realise sometimes, like you said, the privilege that we have, uh, being where we are, the access to things that we have. But that model that 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 seems like the key bit that you've mentioned there. That model of um, income income share and uh, like no upfront costs is the um, it, is the difference maker between this and any of the other conversations that we've had. Previously, we've had some wonderful guests talking about their online academies, but it's, it's obviously built in a, in a bit of a different uh, model because actually then there's the issue with the opportunity because th th those people, 140 countries, like, like just to consider that we have pe you have people that are from Ukraine and Afghanistan and, and other countries in, in Africa as well with, 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 without access um, to opportunity is just, it feels like a really moral thing to do um, as opposed to just... A, the, the, yes, it's a business. Yes, it's um, it, it's entrepreneurial. Yes, it's um, it's it, it dealing with business needs. Um, bear in mind, part of the work that I've done uh, for a number of years has been working in looking at the digital skill shortage in the UK. So we've got forty four, between forty and fifty thousand um, jobs shortage in the uk um, and that's just the uk uh, for those digital skills whether that's marketing software development uh, analytics whatever that looks like and so uh, if that's just the uk and every other country is saying a similar thing we've got to look outside of what we've done and you, you you're doing an alternative here isn't it that's 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 what i'm hearing absolutely but then you also mentioned something important we are a business we're a business not for the sake of profit or for the sake of building something sustainable that can really grow to make a dent in the world. And when you're doing something like a global income share agreement, then you start facing some realities that if you enroll a student and they drop out after four or five months of you investing in their education, you have to you know, consider that a complete loss and then you will never recover. What if someone gets a job uh, or it's actually uh, someone drops out after nine months or while they're job searching, you're still considered that a loss. So it changes the incentives in two different ways radically. First, it forces you to do whatever it takes to get these people to the end with a great job. That alignment of incentives, I know that intellectually speaking, it's very obvious and easy to understand, 
but you have to be inside to understand how obsessed every single team member from the marketing team to the HR team to, of course, the career services team and the product team and the learning team, how obsessed everybody is about just one thing. Everything we have to do or everything we do has to lead to more people getting better jobs and faster, right? That's what brings us all together. But the second thing is it forces you to have to be super selective and demanding when it comes to only accepting people that you know have the true potential for this market and for whatever you can offer today. I think the most important lesson learned that we've had over the last, last like three, four years is that we can't help everybody. And believe me, we only hire people, starting with myself, that is like, oh, but I want to help this person that can't join the program full-time today. Oh, but this person just lost their financial support and they cannot stay in the program full-time because they need to go and look for a job. But what if we can help them somehow, right? We've learned that when we do that, it's an example of idiot compassion. You think that you're being compassionate, but you end up hurting them by setting the wrong expectations. You end up hurting the other people because... In a peer-to-peer learning experience, the quality of the experience is determined by the quality of the peers. So if you have now peers with unequal levels of commitment, it creates a crappy experience for everybody. And of course, ultimately, that hurts the business. So from an admissions point of view, we receive around 30,000 applications to the program per month, out of which we start a new class every month. We are accepting around 200 people. So the selection starts with admissions. But then you might think, oh, you're looking for people who are, you know, genius at coding. No, we're looking for people who actually have the absolute conviction that this is the one only thing that they want to be doing with their lives and who have the readiness, that's how we call it internally, to be able to engage with such an intense and demanding program. And you also mentioned, you know, that is not um, like uh, self-paced. And that is because in a model like this, we need predictability. We need to know that out of this number of people sitting in the program, by this time, we're going to get X number of graduates with this type of jobs paying this match back. Because otherwise, there's no way of knowing if the model is sustainable because people don't pay up front. You only get to truly validate success. And if the model is sustainable, 12 to 18 months later, once these people are landing jobs and paying back. So... Uh, In this case, it means uh, that in order to create a great peer-to-peer experience for all the students and to create a predictable program, we require that people join full-time, Monday through Friday, for a year. We measure, we track not just attendance, but also uh, participation, whether their cameras and microphones are on, their contribution, their collaboration skills, peer feedback. And we use all this information plus deadlines that they have every week to then provide accountability. So if you miss that deadline, you get a chance to repeat that week and try again. That helps us achieve uh, something closer to mastery-based learning. Uh, But if you repeat the same week twice, you're out of the program. If your attendance score drops below 90%, you're out of the program. And when I say out of the program, I say this with all my heart, understanding that this person probably has some financial difficulties, health difficulties that probably I'm completely like, you know, again, so privileged that they're strange to me. But we assume that because we have selected people who have super high levels of intention, it's something else going on. So the most um, empathetic thing to do is to actually say, hey, go take care of that. There is a system for you to come back when you are ready for this. This way you can focus on what's important to you at any point. But whoever is in the school knows that every other peer in the school is fully committed to this level of intensity. This level of intensity, by the way, that by design mimics a real remote job. We don't have teachers. We don't have classes. We don't have lectures. It's 100% project-based learning. Of course, there is like a curriculum design and an instructional design behind this that is scaffolding the, the whole learning experience so that you start with very simple projects. But from the first week, you get a team, you get a project, And you start building this as if you were part of a remote multinational company following the best practices of software engineering and like remote work. It's fascinating. It really is. Uh, Let's unpick some bits in terms of the business model first, um, because that's probably where I sit and where my head is at right now. But um, okay, so a couple of questions. We'll we'll, we'll talk about uh, the number of staff. 
what type of roles and how, and you talked about talent identification and talent development both in your staff but also in the, the the students so let's dive into that so how many staff does it take to run a beast like this what does that look like and how much time does it take to dedicate once they come in once you've identified talent as a as a member of the team rather than a student to take them and nurture them and develop them to a point of where they're ready to to be to, to be supported so the program is around 12 months with some variability because of this weekly repetition system from starting until they get a job, more or less. Um, sorry, sorry. From, rather than from a student point of view, from a staff point of view, so in terms of the development of the company before we get it, because I'm, I'm, I want to then definitely dive into the student side. Perfect. But, but so, from a staff point of view, how do, you, how do you acquire, how do you identify the talent, how do you recruit that, and how do you develop it to, to get it ready for for the company you're now driving forward. Perfect. For context, we are training 2,000 students this year, more or less. We are a staff of 70 people. We have raised uh, $20 million of capital so far. But out of those 70 people, there are three people working on the more like instructional design side of things, curriculum design, and two designers working on the learning experience design from a more pedagogical point of view. That's it. That's from a pedagogy, like a traditional pedagogical point of view, that's it for now. And there is, there is a support layer that, you know, is helping people who get, you know, stuck with some, you know, tooling issues, access to tools, uh, you know, account issues. Uh, and there's one exception to this. At the very end of the program, we have professional career coaches that work with students making sure that they're prepared for the interviews, that they shine when they, you know, present themselves through the LinkedIn profiles and portfolios to help uh, them choose the right jobs, negotiate job offers, and students have access, lifetime access to coaches. So we help them get their second job and their third job and their fourth job. Other than that, everything else is product, product engineering. And then, of course, the, you know, general administration, you know, CEO, COO, um, marketing team. Now, from an acquisition point of view, uh, it depends on the country. Some countries are just word of mouth. Nigeria comes as an example, comes to mind, where we have thousands and thousands of applicants every month because we have diversity limits per country and per continent on every class of anti-diversity. Nigeria often has uh, waiting times of several months for people to get into the school. Other countries can be a little more competitive, but we have this very unique value proposition. We are exclusively helping people get to high paying jobs internationally. So we often partner with local universities and boot camps to become the next step for their grads. Now, when it comes to admissions, I mentioned we have 30,000 applicants, we're listening like 200. You might think, oh, you probably have a lot of people doing interviews. No, it's also peer to peer led. We get applicants to interview other applicants they do a peer review of each other by spending one day working with each one of them. And then we use the average of the peer reviews to decide who gets into the school and who doesn't. Then you join the school. And uh, during your first uh, week, you're going to get an onboarding mentor who is a student on their second month, where they went through that, have a lot of empathy. They have a very recent experience. They're going to help you. As you work on your first project, your first week, you will get a project review or a code review. That will be done by a student who is in the second or third or fourth month of the program. What about the management of those co-reviewers? Well, it's done by students who are at the end of the program who can opt to become full-time uh, managers of the part-time co-reviewers. And then you become an alum, you got a job, you're helping the students through mock interviews, the job searchers of the moment. So all of this is purely peer-to-peer -peer led from the beginning to the end, and it's all orchestrated with software. So we don't need anybody running the operations it's fascinating because you said you've got uh correct me if i'm wrong 70 staff but actually it's built it's not built it, it's a great model in terms of the volunteers and the giving back scheme and there are those people who've been through it and then developing other people and supporting through peer networks and then they're not technically volunteers but i, I really like the they model get paid all the students do so the students as they get into these internal jobs they get paid for that which helps them uh with the financial support side of things okay no no i love it so that's absolutely fine but no i really like the model i think it's absolutely great uh and, and i suppose you must have some wonderful data behind this in regards to when people talk about the development of talent 
in this industry and preparation for the global economy, you must be saying, well, actually, based on, I don't know it's based on 2,000 ships a year, but it's still a really fascinating stat to then say, what what does that look like per continent? What does that, in terms of diversity, what does that look like in terms of race? What does that look, all of these different data sets, uh, I know uh, data is the new oil, apparently, that's what I heard the other day, but like, I know you're not in the business to sell it, but it must be fascinating to be able to look at that, and even just for fun, rather than put it out there, to, for you and your team, the CEO, the COO, and the marketing will sit there and just go, Let's just pick a stat and let's just get geeky on it and let's just have a look at what's the, what's the biggest trends, what what what's happening in Nigeria. All of that stuff would must be fascinating to just unpick and spend a bit of time looking at. It's overwhelm, overwhelmingly fascinating. Um, there's so much amazing data. We have eight percent of the team right now just working on data, and we could be doing more. Uh, it, it, it's just wonderful. And again, because. Education in general has very long validation cycles, right? But when you add something like an income share agreement, then you have really strong incentives to have to build predictability around those long-term validation cycles. So uh, data is, yeah, it, it's, it's queen. Uh, and there's a king and queen, I don't want to be, you know, uh, both are equally important. <laughs> yeah, Ben, yeah. I, I don't know if you're... Wanting to come in, but I'm, I'm interested just to finish and close Bloody up. Hell, Steve. Bloody hell, I'm taking over. I'm, I'm, like, I know, you, I'm you, do every, you do every other week where you just I, like, I, I, let everybody I, I, else talk and then you don't Yeah, sorry, but I, I think that is a good sign. Yeah, yeah. yeah I, I, so I'm, I'm fascinated in terms of so you've talked about the talent identification of, of your staff. Uh, I will have a question later on in regards to the, the ratio of, of people focusing on the pedagogy for compared to those who were focused on life or, or business coaches to see because I'm guessing there'll be a an even split to try and develop those because ultimately as a business, and I know it's not just focused on profit, you want to get them high quality learning so they have the skills, but also get them a job. Otherwise, uh, it all falls over and that uh, $20 million worth of, of investment goes nowhere because you uh, <laughs> nobody's getting a job. Nobody's going to come to a school where they don't get a job. That's the whole aspiration thing. But going back to it, apologies, I waffled there. The, the, the One of the most fascinating bits must be talent identification and then talent development development of students you've talked about how you do that in terms of the development of it on course how do you go from recognizing when they apply to then saying oh we only pick students what is the mechanism to do that to get them in from application right to where they start the course what does that look like because that must be so important for a business mod business model like yours and also a learning model like yours where we're meant to be helping each other peer-to-peer Absolutely. So first of all, we look a lot of the, at the data on employability and can backtrack what are the leading indicators that we can filter for in the, sim in the same way that an HR team or a hiring manager will do to select great team members to join their teams, right? Uh, now, in terms of the specifics of the process, um, it's a somehow long process. Uh, you know, some courses you can join by signing up and choosing a cohort or going through some, you know, you know, quizzes. In this case, it starts with a little quiz. Then you have some uh, coding challenges that you have to pass. They're not, you know, we have people that have never coded before in their lives. And with, we have practice sessions that are run by students, by the way, that get paid, where we help applicants get up to speed with the basic coding skills so that they can pass those coding challenges. And again, what we're looking for is great determination. Then can they think with some training, with some help um, to, you know, can they think algorithmically, logically, right? And, and that's it. Then they move on to uh, we call like a readiness test, where we check that they have the right microphone, the right internet connection, the right camera, the right English level. Right. This is one of these areas where, like, eventually we have we have plans, specific plans to help people that don't speak English yet, because that's a massive barrier that we have. But today we know that we can only help people that speak English. Okay, that's one of the constraints that we have to have. So we look for that, and then it's when they move to this. What we call like the the uh, the trials, where they meet with at least three other applicants one day with each one of them, and they spend like four to six hours building a project collaboratively, and then they rate each other. They rate each other not just in like technical skills and learning capacity, but also communication skills, punctuality. They also rate uh, the quality of their microphones and internet connections on top of the data, uh, you know, uh, scanning that we do by you know using the Zoom API, for example. 
And then they answer questions like, you know, if you were to join the school full time, is this a person that you would like to have as your coding partner? And that helps you, you know, if they say no, but they rated the person everything with a 10 out of 10, you know that, you know, that uh, rating is not that valid. It's like you give it less weight. Sometimes you have doubts about the, the student. In those cases, we believe that there is no such thing as failure. So we don't reject people, we give feedback. We say, hey, we got this and this and this and this thing. So you need to improve. Here's how you can do it. Here's where you can try again. And many people try again and they get in. I like that. I like that. Nobody, nobody fails. Um, there is no such thing. And like, if there's that determination to get better, then then that's that's a win. It's a win for everybody, isn't it? Because they then push themselves to develop and be ready. Um, I'm I'm interested to to kind of get into this conversation around um, employers because obviously the key metric here is how many of these people go into employment and we've looked at um, it's easy for anybody to go onto the microverse website and be able to look at some of the employers that your students have gone on to work for or are working with um, so tying it into employers is is, is is a, is a huge thing. One of the things that I looked at in some of the college work that we did was there's a, there's a, in the UK, there's a, a big push and it's just push everywhere, I'm guessing, but a big push on this, this buzz phrase of employer engagement. Uh, we've got to, we've got to work with our local, uh, local um, uh, LMI data and be able to work out what the labor market intelligence telling us and let's make sure we network and point together. And actually, um, that core creation of curriculum is not necessarily done um, uh, done well in the UK uh, and probably not around the world, if we're honest, that we are teaching a curriculum that we have had for a significant amount of time. That is um, somehow we think this is important. I was just literally before I came on, I watched a little video um, on LinkedIn talking about and there was a, there was a, a, an MP speaking or a, a youth parliament member speaking in parliament talking about how, how well she can recite the quadratic formula but is that really preparing it for work and life um and so we've got a curriculum that is that is designed by people who think that shakespeare is super important and keats is super important and quadratic formulas are super important yet these people aren't going into employment um and aren't getting aren't getting work but we've also got to think about philosophically what is the purpose of education is the purpose of education to get people into employment is it utilitarian so we teach these children so they can get into employment for your model it absolutely is the case we're teaching people to get into employment so my question really is around this partnership and work with with employers do you is it that they co-create the curriculum with you is it that you are um, you've got an idea that microsoft need excuse me, Microsoft need 12 software developers in 12 months' time. They're going to believe that they're going to be, that's where their pipeline is, and therefore they need them to have these skills, and therefore that's what we're going to teach from. So that, that'll hopefully open up a couple of other questions for me. Absolutely. At the beginning, we designed this backwards, but not with a specific employer, but just by looking at the market data, right? Where is the largest number of uh, jobs uh, in terms of like, you know, tech stack, where is the largest gap of talent for the number of jobs available? What is the type of tech stack and job that is more likely to hire people remotely and internationally, right? That's often like startups. Startups are have an easier time going remotely and a harder time hiring locally, competing with the big employers. So, you know, they're more price sensitive, more likely to be flexible. Okay, what are the technologies that startups are using, not just, just the big tech companies? Um, and we designed that back. And that's been working really, really well. But let me let me ask you a question. Um, if we were to look at the most successful like learning organizations in the world, right? And you think about their the completion rate of a bootcamp, a training program, or uh, like a university degree, and all, also like online courses in general, what would be uh, a completion rate of a training program that you're like that is solid, that is really good? I think I think. 85, 90% is probably going to be a benchmark there. Perfect. So in a, in a program where you don't pay anything up front and when you're working with like people from very, very underprivileged backgrounds, normally that for most organizations is on the 20 to 50%. Uh, we have landed so far somewhere in the middle at 65%, which took a lot of iterations to get there. Now, uh, 
what is the employment rate of a great university or you know a great like training program? I won't. I won't even know. I won't even know if no I'm honest. Idea. But I'm guessing it's low. Well, the thing is, most organizations don't know because they don't need to track it because they don't get paid based on that. We do, right? And the beautiful thing is by just being a school, by training people, by giving them the skills to get the jobs themselves, we had an employability rate of 90%. 90% of the people who complete the program get a job within six months uh, working as a software engineer. Now, with the market changing the way it is right now, we know that we can't just assume that that will continue happening. So recently, in the last six months, we started building for the first time a partnerships team. And now we're starting to work much more closely with larger employers so that we can integrate their needs in a much more like um, specific ways into the curriculum to make sure that we can much more predictably um, uh, like land that high employability uh, rate, even if the market, you know, it is in a place where like, Facebook just laid off 11,000 people yesterday, right? Yeah, and I, I, I also love the start of, <clears throat> I think on the website, it's a high 200s um, in regards to the the type of job. It doesn't say what type of job, but it talks about the, the, the increase in salary. And I think that's specific because there will be data captures um, globally and in organisations where they say 97% of our, um, of our uh, students get jobs. I'm not degrading any job out there, Joe, but what type of job is it, Joe? Is it a, a job that's sustainable in terms of income? What is it? Is it benefiting, actually? Are you worth off, worse, worse off? Or actually, is it just a full-time job in Subway that you're working part-time when you're a student? That's still a stat to some of these organisations, and I'm guessing that's not a metric that um, really appeals to you because, ultimately, it's great, but that's not going to be, uh, if you are doing you- an income share, you're not interested yeah. in that. And I th- and yeah, I, I, I think it'll tie into that concept of when we were in um, sixth form colleges and stuff, um, we had the conversations around destinations data. And I always used to find that really, really frustrating that I, as a I as a um, head of sixth form, was responsible for tracking and Ofsted would, would, uh, would also judge us based around the destinations data, i.e. what where these people have gone on to. So how many of them are in full-time um, university employment or a university or they're in full-time employment? Well, I don't control that, but actually, the model that you're talking about here is saying the destinations data is the is the key metric it's everything. because the, because because the, there is nothing without it. But I also I, I like this as a as a model for the future of education, and this is where why why I'm talking about it because it's not just about the online model, although I like that. It's not just this idea of remotely working uh, that I also like and working anywhere you are, but it's that it's that it's that idea that somehow. And, I, and this is where I'm starting to get a little bit excited because we have been talking about the performance tables in the UK. So um, going a bit nerdy now, the idea around performance tables is based around student achievement in a certain certain endpoint terminal assessment that, that might not be fair, that might be biased towards certain people, blah, 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 blah. Then we, then we put them grades in a table and then we compare student against student, school against school, district against district, and it just becomes a horrible competition um, where it, it, it's just skewed towards a certain demographic of people, and I, I've been thinking, well, how do you how do you make sure that the demographic, how do you make sure that the performance happens and that there's a level of accountability? And we had uh, Laura McInerney on the podcast a, a while ago from Teacher Tap, and we had that conversation about whether we should get rid of performance tables and whether we should get rid of Ofsted and all that conversation. If the new metric was genuine destinations. That were making a difference that that was sustainable. If that was if that was a metric, that is a metric I could get behind, and it's not a metric that's easily controllable from a teacher that they can massage certain grades and not put certain people in for certain exams. Actually, these students not only have they got to pass the exam, they've got to be ready for work. As a measure, I don't know. I'm I'm, I'm throwing something out there quite radical, but if, is that is that a fairer measure for the future of education that these how many people go into full time educate uh, full time um, employment or are in, um, in, in in additional courses? I don't know. And, and it depends, right? Education, as you were saying before, can be there for the sake of getting a job, but it can also be for the sake of, you know, um, like personal fulfillment and exploration, you know, and the little arts and creation. Um, 
So, and, and then, you know, just plain devil's advocate to my own model, right? You can think, okay, getting, tracking people are getting great jobs and if they're keeping those jobs, it's, it's much better than not doing it. But what if making a lot of money leads to like unhappiness because now you have a lot of stuff that money can create new problems, right? So, um, there, there, you know, I, there are so many cases in the world, I'm not talking about micro, it's like where money creates issues. So like, what should we optimize in for as humanity? Is it uh, income and, you know, professional stability? Is it freedom? Is it happiness? How do you measure those things? It's really hard um, be, because we're trying to build something sustainable and because we believe that instead of trying to create a new system, we have to fight the system from within and help it transform it. You know, we are playing under the rules of a capitalist model. It's a, it's a global model, but it's a capitalist model. And we're helping these people play by the rules, but kind of like, you know, infiltrate with all this diversity and new thoughts and best practice and help it change it uh, from, from within. And then we believe that by doing that, these people won't have to leave their friends or families or communities. They don't have to like spend their money in a country that is already rich. They can spend it in their communities. They pay tax in their community. And we think that that creates a much more equitable you know, ecosystem for wealth redistribution that leads to more freedom, to more opportunity. And, and, and then it comes the values. We believe that freedom leads to happiness, which you know, you can argue against as well. We don't measure that well other than through job satisfaction and job retention and you know, salary increases. But I think there is more work to do to truly hold ourselves accountable here. Like, are these people truly happier with this decision they made? It's an interesting one. I'm interested in a few years to get back on to see how that goes. Because that, I love that. Yeah, to, to, to measure. Because growth as a business, growth as income, but also the whole facet of what growth actually is as a being, intellectually, as a community, everything else. It's, um, but it looks like you might be able to get some data on it. So uh, it's, it, 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 it'd, be, it'd be good. Be good. He, he, and, here's, here's a weird thing, by the way. Um, there are many schools out there, uh, not, not many, several schools trying to do income sharing agreements. Some of them will charge you, no matter how much money you make, we charge you only if you make at least $1,000 a month, which by the way, in the UK, in Spain, in the US, it's very little money for a software engineer. In most of the countries where we operate, it's three times the uh, salary for a junior developer. So we are putting the bar so that you only get to pay us if you are getting a job that you couldn't have done locally. Um, but sorry, I lost track of what I was going to say. Um, anyway, keep going. I'll, I'll come back we'll, to we'll, me. We'll, we'll, we'll come back to it. Don't worry. Yeah. Let, let's move on to, because we haven't even really touched on, before you started Microverse, this whole thing of business startups, and, and obviously you've, you've had some investment uh, in regards to Microverse and, and, and a testament to do so, because it's not an easy thing. But you were in Argentina, and you—I think the the links with um, uh, Lonely Planet and and everything else. What, what, how did that start? What what was life like? Not from start to don't don't go from nursery to now. I don't know. But uh, what was life as an entrepreneur and a developer uh, and, and that side of it before you before you settled on Microverse? So I've been coding since I was seven six years old. Uh, I didn't know I was coding back then. I've been um, consciously coding since I was 12. And then I did computer science. I decided to start my, my first company right after college. And it was that first startup. It was a, a travel tech um, startup uh, that I started back in 2009. And we were, just for context, like uh, one of the first, if not the first app in the world offering offline maps on your phone so that people traveling internationally could get access to the information they need to navigate new destinations without having data on their phones. And we grew that to more than a million users worldwide. And in 2012, uh, I realized that to compete, we were gonna need access to more capital and the capital was not in Spain, not even in Europe back then, it was in San Francisco. And that's why I moved to San Francisco. I went through a lot of immigration challenges. I remember the first meeting I ever had with an investor in Silicon Valley this is, I'm not making this up. He told me, Ariel, you are wasting your time here in Silicon Valley. You should go back to Spain. That was my first meeting in Silicon Valley. The great thing is that every meeting 
after that one was better because the bar was very low already, right? So like, uh, you know, once you have touch bottom, it's everything else looks like great. Uh, and in fact, you know, we got into 500 startups, the acceleration program, we were raising our series A and uh, in the process, we got this offer from Lonely Planet, a brand that we really, really admire. This happened. It's a much longer story. It's also a mix of how they happen. It's like a lot of like dots that, you know, using like Steve Jobs Awards, it got connected in ways that there's no way you, have, you could have planned for that. I was, the day that I got the email from the CEO of Lonely Planet that he was in town and that he wanted to meet with me before going back to Nashville, Tennessee, was the day that my flight to Tanzania should have landed, but I didn't take that flight because the girlfriend that I was going with had broken up with me the week before. That you know, it's a lot of amazing coincidences. Uh, but we got this 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 offer. It was clear in that dinner that they wanted to acquire the company because it's this like forty years old, amazing travel brand that is trying to like digitalize and modernize itself, and they need you know people that know how to build great you know, digital products and experiences. And we had a small but mighty team that have proven that. And, and we ended up um, selling the company and joining uh, Lonely Planet. And it was back then when I did a little trip to Burundi and when I met the founder of GitLab and I got to start working remotely for Lonely Planet. I got to like start managing people remotely. And, you know, it's kind of all the pieces that are fitting together. And while I was working for Lonely Planet, uh, you know, I started making, making sure that whatever next company I was going to start, which I knew was a matter of time, had to be a company that I could see myself running for the rest of my life. Because like, even when things go badly with a startup, it takes four or five years of your life. And life is too short to be doing that for something you don't care about, right? And the story of this student, uh, Kevin from Kenya, is the one that I use every time. The day he told me I got this job offer at Microsoft and my mom wants to talk. And I showed up in a Zoom call with his mom and with a massive smile, she tells me, Ariel, I am so proud of my son, but so grateful to you. That day I knew that it doesn't matter if we change the world, if we have millions of students, I knew that what I'm doing every day is putting a smile in someone's mom's face. Nothing beats that every day, you know, to keep you motivated. And of course, to my engineering brain, the challenge of figuring out how to scale it, uh, like, technologically, pedagogically, and financially, I mean, that will keep me busy for the rest of my life, luckily, like, hopefully. Yeah, yeah, I can, I can imagine. And uh, I, can, I can imagine that, that what a great story that is about Kevin and his mum, but also how that ties into the whole purpose, the reason why you do what you do. It, um, it, it just seems like it's a, it, it's more than a, it's more than a, a business, isn't it? It's more of a, a purpose and the and a making a difference type stuff as well. So I, I love that. And I wonder if we can just as as we kind of pull things towards a close, this idea around, you, we, we've touched on the ideas about the future of work. You've talked about remote work. You've talked about um, some of the trends that you're seeing in terms of business and the growth that's happening there. And, and, and obviously the majority of our listeners are from the education sphere and uh, maybe in educational leadership, they may well be in technology and education, or they, they, they might be in a classroom. We've got a whole range of people. Um, I, I'd be interested to, to hear what your thoughts are on the, the future of work, the trends that are coming with that, and then potentially um, how that might then affect how we do education more than what we've already talked about. So the good news is that the skills for the future of work or the best practices of the future of work are just best practices for any kind of job, for any kind of work that you do. It's about being great communicators, is to be great in terms of, you know, collaboration skills, is to, you know, be great about working with people who are different to you. It's about being super transparent. It's about having great documentation. It's about measuring work based on outcomes, not on inputs and outputs. All the things are things that any company that wants to grow to a certain size and completely only will have to do anyway. So the skills of the future work are just the skills to be really competitive at the global level, except that as a result of globalization, we're creating a lot of global opportunities that were really hard to do before. You know, if you look at you know, 100 years ago, 1,000 years ago, the opportunities were much more local. 
Now we have the, all this technology and infrastructure that allows us like be running a business from Spain that is impacting people in 140 different countries, right? So um, in order to do that, then all these best practices that were best practices already become a must because otherwise you cannot do these things like globally. You cannot give people autonomy. You cannot create transparency. You cannot create trust. So all I'm trying to say is like, there's nothing truly new here. It's just that now, if we really want as countries remain competitive in this global market, we better start making sure that every professional have the skills. Of course, for a long time, there will be jobs that maybe don't require this. And, you know, I'm talking most about, you know, like the knowledge um, uh, economy, uh, but all these new jobs that we're going to have to reskill people into if they want to remain employed, will need to also include a massive element of this soft skills and best practices that have nothing to do with the technical skills to do the job. Yeah, I think the uh, the skills to develop um, artificial intelligence is one thing, but the skills for human intelligence is the other and actually how they need to come together and you can't just be focused on developing uh, the tech. You have to have an understanding of working in projects, working in teams, communicating, uh, working on brief, all of those kind of things. Um, I've just quickly just been Googling and I was like, when I first talk, when you first started talking and I was, I'm just going to kind of bring it to a bit of a close on it around um, it's it's everybody doing it eight hours a day. Uh, it's synchronous rather than asynchronous. I'm thinking, oh, I'm not sure how I feel about it. Do you know, if, do you know like I'm thinking do you know, the, the, the complexities, the, do you know, the scalability, do you know, if, uh, uh, the, you'd have to then start pockets and, and, and you've got a whole different thing of if you're going to start to regionalize it, you know, the standardization model anyway. Uh, but then I, I, I was like, right, I'm quickly just going to find something in terms of a stat that I've not looked at before and, it, and just refresh it. That it's interesting that if you went down an asynchronous model, it becomes a bit like a MOOC and those kind of things. And, the, and, and, and what we have to remind people is, is asynchronous has been developed really, really well to, and, and, and can be done really, really well. But actually, if they aren't paying, so they're not tied in by their investment up front, the dropout of those kind of courses is 90%. 90% is, is significant. And actually, I really understand the business model and the whole approach of actually, if you want students to be able to be committed, that they can't pay up front. You've got your equity share at the end, or your, your, uh, your, but I, I think it's a smart model. I'm really interested to see where it goes in terms of scalability, the complexities of an organization, the standardization. You will have to keep it rigid and you will have to put some stuff in where it's like all classes start at nine o'clock and finish at five o'clock. You cannot start a quarter. Everybody has breaks at this time. You have to follow this program, you have to do this, and, and, and obviously it'll translate and transfer into language. But it's fascinating, really fascinating. And, and, and to see some of the big investors that you've got backing uh, Microverse behind the scenes uh, that people might not be aware of shows I think it's got some longevity, and I'm excited to see where it goes, I think. Yeah, very and, much and, so. and, and by the way, we have a lot of exciting things coming up. We have been experimenting for a while with uh, living stipends. So we actually pay a little salary to people so they can afford joining the school until they get one of these internal jobs so that they can make this sustainable uh, financially speaking. As I mentioned, we have been trying to uh, think about how we will go on designing experience that starts in Spanish, Arabic, Portuguese, French, uh, that then uh, provide English training in parallel to that so that then you can join the rest of the cohorts of course, we will launch a part-time program, right? That that is that gives people much more flexibility. But you have to think about the trade-offs of, of all of this. And a part-time program means it takes twice as long to validate the the outcomes. And now I want to I want like I want to leave with maybe one last thing here, which is a financial layer that we haven't discussed. Because of this model, because of the peer-to-peer -peer element, people get trained for international jobs. They have access to really high salaries which means they're willing to pay us much more than what they will pay a local bootcamp or a local university. We are more expensive because the return on that investment is much higher. Because we have the peer to peer structure, it allows us to lower the cost, but we also get to charge more. So we have really high margins. And because we have high margins is that we can do the risky thing of offering an income share agreement worldwide. But that's just like 
you know, profitability from a you know, revenue point of view. But what about cash flows? We don't get paid until 12 to 18, 30, like 36 months later. What we do in parallel is we have a financial team that creates investment vehicles that allows investors of all sizes to invest in these future revenues of students by kind of like uh, investing in each one of these uh, contracts at a discount so that they get some profit and we get to upfront some of these revenues. And some people might think, wait, but now you're getting, you're getting money upfront and your incentives are no, no longer there. No, if the students don't get a job, we don't get to pay the investors. And then we have a big problem, right? So like the incentives are there, but we're doing a lot of things that, that go way beyond pedagogy to figure out how to make this model scalable. And there is a lot of things that we will be doing to lift the barriers of access to education that again, Pedagogy is a massively important element, but there's so much more to it than that. Love it. Yeah. Love it. It's been it's been uh, it's been a fantastic, fascinating conversation. And, and like Steve said, it'd be great to uh, talk to you again in a, in a few years' time of where things are at. I'm sure that this is not going to be um, a model that we that we that we ignore. I think this is going to be one of those things where we refer back to it quite a lot. How you've structured it, your ideas around it, um, how it's working, and and obviously, for those people who um, who want to go and check it out, go to microverse.org and you'll be able to find out loads of stuff there. There's, there's, there's great stuff around um, blogs on there. I've been reading some of them today about the ideas around um, the, the purpose of it. And then if from, if those people who are in software, um, there's some there's some fantastic resources that are on there for free as well. So so check out microverse.org. Um, Ariel, thank you so much for joining us this evening and uh, we'll look forward to championing what microverse does in the coming years thank you so much for having me and i look forward to continuing the conversation in a couple of years Cheers, One.